In a world where points depend on hinges, there are hinge points inside us all. History on a Segway. It's overdetermined. We are the points that our hinges have been seeking. What this podcast asks is what if? Agriculture, fail or epic win? What if it was Johnny Bango Pit? What if the Ottomans had AK 47s? Maybe climate change was a good idea. What if the Ottomans had lightsabers? What if the buffalo killed the What if Santa Claus was real, like an actual guy who gave presents every year? This is Hinge Points. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second season of Hinge Points. I'm Danny Bessner, usually of the American Prestige Podcast, but I am back here to discuss with my friend Matt Chrisman the various hinge points in history. And just to give everyone a little bit of a guidance, hinge points don't really refer necessarily at least to alternative histories, but rather we're drilling down on specific moments or specific alternatives that we believe help us illuminate larger social processes. So that will include an element of alternative history, but it's more an element of these big moments where things maybe could have gone in a different direction. And that's really what we're going to be doing here on the second season of the show. And we're also going to be having more guests than we did last time to hopefully get people with specific expertise and given areas to help us think through some of these large historical problems. And for this first episode, Matt and I are overjoyed to welcome to the podcast producer Chris Wade of the Chapo Trap House podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Folks, they're hinge points. We love the hinge points. The points <laughs> where history hinges. And we love looking at them and focusing on them and figuring out what they mean. Exactly. And we and we thought Chris would be an especially good person to bring on the show because of the topic we're going to talk about today, which is... Um, well, I'm blushing. I was blushing a little bit when you said specific expertise because uh, I think that <laughs> way overshoots me, though I a bit of Chris lore. I do have an undergraduate degree in history with a focus on European medieval history as much as my undergraduate would uh, allow, which I believe was like two courses, one of which was medieval sexuality. Oh, so uh, yeah. <laughs> sounds hot right? Oh, uh, so yeah. I'll tr- be trying to bring all of that uh, memory back to this. And that's why we had you on. And so today, the hinge point we're going to be talking about might be a bit arcane for some of you, but we actually think it's really crucial to understanding the specific historical trajectory of modern capitalism in Europe and beyond. And that is Doggerland. So what is Doggerland? Doggerland was basically the land bridge that existed between the modern UK and France in the English Channel. And about 8,000-ish years ago, it was filled in by rising sea levels. But what we're going to talk through on this podcast 
this podcast episode in particular, is what if Doggerland was never filled in? In other words, what if the United Kingdom never became an island and was uh, was actually always connected to continental Europe? And we think this would have enormous implications for the history not only of the UK, but global capitalism writ large. So just to set the scene, Matt, this is probably for you, why is Doggerland important? Why is England being an island specifically crucial to the development of capitalism itself? Capitalism, uh, like any biological system, uh, has to emerge in a certain band of conditions, a Goldilocks zone. Uh, And in Europe, that Goldilocks zone was provided by the specific conditions of England, which allowed it to exist at like a level of uh, state capacity because of its separation from like uh, continental rivals that allowed it to experiment, you know, uh, and to uh, allow the sort of destabilizing things that uh, like larger powers refuse to uh, countenance because of their role in undermining like legitimate authority. Those sort of uh, innovations were encouraged in the UK, specifically because they were this country that was able to basically punch above its weight continentally and compete with other powers rather than be cowed by the other ones, which it would have been if it had just been another province of uh, the low countries or whatever. So it's really crucial, I think what Matt is saying, is that the isolation of England allowed for the particular conditions that enabled the rise of a particular form of capitalism that eventually took over the globe. Um, there were obviously other capitalisms elsewhere, but it's in England where we get that er form, that, that most advanced form that eventually comes to dominate the United States and North Atlantic world writ, writ large, and through colonialism, the world itself. So getting rid of England, what we're going to propose on this podcast as an independent space, is really crucial to changing the course of modern capitalism. I also don't think it could be undervalued how much having to compete as a naval power uh, and focus on the seas is essential to the history of England, which would be radically different if it, again, was just another one of these continental powers. And this also raises interesting questions about Ireland. You know, if if Ireland is now the, the island facing Europe, does capitalism develop there? Does a different form of capitalism develop? Which is something that we'll be exploring. But because this is such an ancient change, you know, this happened yes. 8,000 years ago, there's a lot of different potential hinge points that emerge from it. So, Chris, why don't you start with the first one? And that relates to Roman rule. Yeah, so when you guys proposed this to me, uh, I w- thought it was a great idea. And it is the most probably the most sweeping one that you've proposed in this series, just because, yes, uh, this concept of the Doggerland never being filled in immediately drifts all of European history, Western history, world history into the realm of uh, almost pure fantasy speculation. But hey, it's our podcast and we can do whatever we want. So the way that I've tried to conceive of how you would go about talking about this is trying to break down modern, or at least, uh, you know, post-year zero England into four kind of crucial historical moments, uh, which I can list off now, and then we'll get into each of them individually. And and the ones I thought were the first, Roman rule, uh, the Roman invasion and conquest or subjugation of England and its subsequent collapse as a political entity, 
uh, the timeline that that would take. Uh, then following that, the um, various medieval invasions, the Saxons first, followed by the Vikings and Danes uh, in the early medieval era. And then following that, uh, the prolonged conflict with continental France in the Hundred Years' War period and kind of the late medieval era. And then finally, focusing in on England's development as a colonizing power uh, and empire uh, in the early modern age. So those are the four, like, Taught discussion points I have. And basically going back to the first one, Roman rule. Okay, so there's a land bridge to Britain. It seems to follow that Roman occupation would probably come quicker and be more complete. It would stand a reason then that after the collapse of uh, Rome or the Gothic invasions, Britain would end up looking a lot more like the areas closer to the center of empire, like Gaul, Spain, or the other Med- Mediterranean polities. So that's where I just kind of want to start this. And maybe it starts with, would Rome get to England faster and com- conquer it more completely. And what's particularly interesting to me about this this potential hinge point is what if the collapse doesn't come like it does? Because I think what's really crucial to the future of British history is that that collapse happens. So you get this mixing of Celtic cultures and Roman cultures, which develops that pure stew um, that is England. So what if England effectively serves as like Gaul? You know, what, what if Gaul is governed by the Romans for hundreds of, of more years? I think that that's actually really interesting because you don't get together the particular concatenation of factors that basically make the United Kingdom a province. And more importantly, and Matt, this is what we always talk about, you get that early medieval period. It's very different because you don't have Northumbria. You don't have Wales all fighting each other necessarily, because I think that conflict is really crucial to developing the particular character of what would later become the United Kingdom and British capitalism. Yes, because uh, as you said, uh, the character of the collapse of the Roman Empire was a catastrophe in the, the British context, which created a vacuum that was filled by competing powers from Northern Europe, all fighting each other, as you said, uh, and 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 failing to assert like a central authority, and only doing so through like these hundreds of years process of like of uh, small scale warfare. And if you have a more integrated Brittany into the Roman Empire with a less dramatic drop off when the uh, central authority of Rome uh, collapses, uh, then, yeah, like maybe you have a more stable polity there that, I mean, is the implication there that, that like the land contained by the Mediterranean, the Alps and the Pyrenees would be like some sort of super state, like, like a precocious super state because of that. I don't know. Yeah, like, what if you get in the Western Empire, the, your version of, like, Byzantium? You know, what What if What if the Holy Roman Empire actually encompasses everything to the West? And then it's so interesting because then you don't get... What if, what if Charlemagne is able to control the United Kingdom? Right. And what if you get this pseudo-feudal uh, territory that isn't able, I think, to contain itself, which is what happens in the medieval period. Charlemagne's never able to go west, really. It's effectively isolated for hundreds and hundreds of years, which leads to the development of this particular, I think, proto, not only capitalism, but this this very early ancient liberalism that, that leads to things like the Magna Carta. Because it, with an integrated Western Europe, a totally integrated Western Europe without that, that English offshore British offshore territory, 
I think you get a more integrated economic space. And particularly, you also don't get a bunch of those British-French uh, wars that happened yeah. over the course of the first 1400 years AD. Just you kept saying the word integrated, and I think just focusing on this last, this early period, this early medieval period, uh, you know, you talked about the um, the relationship of England to the rest of empire, but I also think just the application of a heavier application of Roman infrastructure then gives England itself the the political area of it a more integration on itself. It's more of an identity of a thing starting from the beginning, and it, you know. I feel my knowledge of early English history is it's defined by these warring factions, these small kingdoms that are all competing against each other to form a national identity. And it's kind of there are high points of some, and then everybody gets conquered by some other person. I think that, you know, if there is a a more established trade networks, more established uh, centers of political power from early on, I think that that also makes the entire thing more of the entirety of the English geographic area, more of a centralized area that is easier to be taken over by say a Charlemagne and being like, okay, there's an administrative structure here that can be conquered rather than a hundred little warring chiefdoms of Ethelrics and whoever that are in charge of it in the early, in the early medieval period. I mean, and that has knock on effects with, if you think about like quote unquote Muslim Spain, you know, if there's this integrated territory, maybe you don't have the fracturing of the, of the Western Roman Empire in the way that it does. And then you have a totally different history of Western Europe. I mean, you could have a uh, if you had a unified like, yeah, Holy Roman Empire as it was originally conceived, which is to the uh, was was centered in, in France, not in Germany, that it, that drift came later uh, that you could have like a continental orientation between like Muslim Spain and this like more unified uh uh, Holy Roman Empire. And I think this leads next, uh, almost directly into Chris's next point. Uh, Chris, do you want to talk about it? Because I think the way you pose it is actually really interesting, given the centrality of the Viking invasions to the development of this Anglo-Saxon Norman culture that, that eventually gives rise to capitalism. Yeah, so I think this this next phase of history is quite in- interesting to consider in this context, because again, if we're assuming that this vast geographic space is filled in, it, you know, it does immediately throw all the early medieval kingdoms of Europe into total disarray. But you can po- plausibly still consider that an independent power base uh, in Nor- an independent Norwegian power base arises that gives ri- that is this Viking culture, and that it still is launching these raids onto uh, Western Europe, um, which were, you know, very dramatic and cataclysmic for all the polities there. But if there's more space, if it's closer to Norway, if it's more spread out, if there's more geographical territory to cover, perhaps these Viking invasions are just more dispersed and less cataclysmic and less of a wholesale invasion of this island that is separated from everyone everywhere else that is part of this, you know, much more recognizable North Sea kind of circle of lands that includes Norway, Denmark, and England during this time. So perhaps, you know, the Viking era is less of a thing. Right. The question that I think is really compelling here is what if there's no Dane law, really? You yeah. know, what What if you're able to come together as, the, a, a, even if the Western Roman Empire, you know, 
is no longer as connected to Rome itself, but has these sorts of large polities. You have, you know, Western Gaul is now a, a unified unit. Do you actually either, if not totally fight off the Vikings because their military capacities were just like very, very effective at the time, do you have like a much lesser influence of the Dane law, which I think is actually pretty crucial towards proto-individualism and proto-liberalism. That's sort of what makes England interesting is you have that unique blend of the Northern European with the collapsing Western Roman. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, again, I'm just thinking about this as like, if you don't have the specific place of island England to focus on, you know, even if they're bringing these, you know, Norse traditions over, you know, perhaps instead of a concentrated area, you end up with just hundreds and hundreds of little settlements, uh, little raiding villages, little trade posts scattered across this vast space in the now filled in Northern Sea. Or perhaps you don't even uh, get that kind of, you know, seafaring, uh, raiding type of society because it's just the primacy of the North Sea as a transit. Uh, location is just vastly diminished by the virtue of it not being a big sea, being a big land area. And that's also really interesting because what then potentially happens, which we haven't talked about, is what if, let's say, you have in England the Western Roman structures, you adopt the North Sea raiding technologies, and then you get a British empire that's not seafaring but goes east. You know, like it pulls almost like uh, like a Hitler or Napoleon, where it begins to conceive of itself not as this territory that needs to get spaces. But like now you have a land-based empire emanating from the UK into Europe. That's pretty wild if you think about it. Yeah. You have like an acceleration of that eastward push that like was – characterized by the the Teutonic Knights after the failure of the Crusades. So you'd have to assume, you know, uh, if you still have a Christian Europe, you'd still have uh, that push east, but maybe a more concerted and effective push east than the disorganized bumblefuck that uh, the Crusades ended up being. (laughs) Because you had a bunch of these assholes all competing with one another, and they'd be in the middle of a campaign, and then they'd have to go home because the other guy quit so he could go and try to take his throne. That kind of bullshit. Uh, Like the Second Crusade was, uh, I don't know, the fourth one, the the Richard the Lionhearted one was completely undermined by the fact that he was in competition with his cousin, the King of France, and they were both supposed to be leading armies there, and then uh, the, the cousin went back to France and then uh, the English had to go back because they thought he was going to try to take the throne. Like, if you don't have that kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, horse hockey going around, <laughs> you have a more unified imperial administration, then maybe you have, like, an actual effective recolonization uh, of uh, the Middle East. This is also making me think, you know, as, as these points blend into each other and we're talking about the competition between England and France – when you first suggested my this topic, my like shoot from the hip first thought was, oh, England just becomes France too. It's like has basically the same trajectory and political history and very similar like political evolutions. And so when you're talking about that push to the east, I'm thinking that maybe the Hundred Years War, the Hundred Years War is probably not fought in France, but is fought right. maybe between England and France in Germany. 
or something like that right. over you or, know influence. Or if they held it together, uh, or against you know the Saracen, mm-hmm. you know it's it's a continual crusade on a, like a an, on a stable and perhaps expanding border. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to what it was, you know, just the petty squabbles. Or, yeah, like they're an attempt to conquer Germany that then, like, breaks into uh, factionalism. I mean, I do love, even with this massive geographic change, the assumption can stay the same that Germany is still fucked for uh, a thousand years of political well, history. Well, that's the question, right? So this is actually a big question. So Germany, obviously, what actually happens is they break up to a million principalities. But if yeah. you have Anglo-French power coming together, and not only that, if you France was never able to develop the navy partially because they had England right there. But what if you have England France mega power in which it develops on one hand the land-based military tactics that France specialized in plus the seafaring taxes uh, of England because it's still a promontory, it's still a peninsula yeah. that is like that is pushing out into the ocean. So Doggerland, what it allows to do, it, it depends. It, Doggerland could be one of two things. It could either be like the reach, you know, in 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 Game of Thrones, where it's impossible <laughs> to a cool reference, where it's impossible to be totally conquered, or it could be like a linking space that allows two relatively different geographical areas to come together in a mega power that combines both the best of land and sea powers. So you might even get an earlier colonialism. You know, what if you, you get rid of all of those British French wars, you get an earlier colonialism, you get an earlier conquest focused, not, not to the oceans, like, because the technology wasn't there yet, you know, to even conceive of going to the Americas and the desperation didn't exist. It would have been East. And if there would have been like, if there would have had this sort of effective administration emerging out of this, like a uh, hyperpower coming into being, it absolutely would be able to effectively assert. But yeah. Like the, the, that, the, that basin of Germany, which could not be ever like brought into a single uh, unit uh, was that's in the context of, of a Europe where there can be no main, you know, power that is able to consolidate beyond a certain level, at which point it breaks up. And it, you get back to uh, a inefficient level of uh, of small state conflict that won't allow anyone to take power. Uh, and then, so in that context, Germany is and has been ungovernable until the modern era. This could have accelerated that significantly uh, because it's not like there was any other competitor uh, state that could have built resistance to an effective Anglo-French empire. Like they, they would just be unable to resist them because of their limited capacity. And that's interesting because if you think about Europe in the medieval period, what's unique about it is that there's a million polities. You know, if you think about the Islamic world, it's these gigantic governed spaces. If you think about China, it's these gigantic governed spaces. So what if you get the European version of that? So then this is really the question, how much do you guys think capitalism is dependent on those small polities constantly and fighting with each other? I think that it's the conditions that that are necessary. I think it's the it's the fundamental social condition that brings everything else into alignment because it is the necessity of conflict that pushes people towards adopting destabilizing uh, technologies that uh, are threats to established rule that they otherwise would not want to see encouraged. It's the necessity of conflict. Uh, and so the fact that everybody in Europe is always fighting their neighbor and every moment, and therefore every momentary advantage over their neighbor is to be exploited out of, again, necessity, because this is an existential question. 
that results in innovations being adopted on by these states that are they're small, but they're big enough to have concentrated enough capital to be able to invest in certain innovations and technologies and then use those in a way that like the empires of uh, China did not, even though the inventions came just the same way they did and faster. In fact, uh, earlier they were uh, suppressed and not adopted because there was not that, uh, that existential question due to the relative stability of the, uh, of the imperial order, uh, which was why the question that this we're really asking is if you don't have this, this little organelle popping off of the continent, <laughs> England, able to like exist as this synthesizing clearinghouse for all of these, uh, uh, tum- all of the uh, innovations that are occurring in the context of this endless tumult of violence, where they really are bringing up like they are the runt of the litter here. You know, they're at the far east of the of the continent. Uh, they have access to basically no real resources except fucking wool, <laughs> uh, and then they have to try to survive in competition with these states that have much greater resources. And it puts them into, it it, it orients their entire society towards this expedient uh, acceptance of of, uh, destabilizing technologies, social and otherwise, that is not in evidence in other uh, social structures in Europe. Like Englishmen create capitalism because of the conditions of being English. And what we're saying here is, if you don't have that, uh, if that part of the world is just integrated into this system and therefore the conditions to create Englishmen don't exist, does that mean that we get a relatively stable, larger polity that is in imperial war at all times with, you know, the fucking Turks and uh, hell, probably the Mongolians at some point. They're going to have to handle with Mongolians. <laughs> yeah, because they happens. would take over Germany, right? What if it's an uh, English-French yeah. power in Vienna? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, uh, that, that violence is all happening. But like at the lower level... You're going to have more of this uh, steady state, which means that capitalism will have a much harder time emerging in the con- the crisis conditions that brought it into being. And the two main crises that lurch a relatively stable European feudalism in the direction of capitalism are first the Black Death uh, and then the uh, Little Ice Age of the 17th century. And those things you have at the point of the Black Death, a feudalism that was in terminal stasis. It was It was locked. Because uh, it, 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 there was no more, there wasn't enough gold to to sim- stimulate like uh, virtual economic activity, uh, and there wasn't enough land for everybody who needed to eat. It was not, it, and there was nowhere for it to expand because the uh, the crusade had failed, uh, and the exogenous shock of the Black Death, the Malthusian check, reoriented the structures and destabilized feudalism critically. And cri- st- from that point on, feudalism is doomed. Something has to replace it. Uh, and that doesn't come into existence, though, after, you know, the, the subsequent 200 years of hyper-conflict that creates these new military states mm-hmm. that are able to uh, call to their power all of these new technologies of bureaucracy and taxation uh, and and uh, gunpowder and, and firearms and this stuff that raises the stakes of the conflict and requires some new social formation to contain conflict. And the only place that that's going to be stabilized is one that is able to experience the conditions of a capitalist power, namely uh, an imperial relationship with a uh, subject other. And no other European polity had that experience in in that post-Black Death world than England because of their relationship to Ireland, which is wholly unique in Europe. Before we get on... 
Sorry, well, I, I feel like you want to transition right to Ireland, but I, I want to bring up one other small example of this uh, European competition before we go to Ireland, because I feel like that's going to be a big topic of conversation. Another thing that this, again, this geographic what if brought up to for me in this context is the eradication of the Dutch as a uh, and as a, a political entity in the way that we would know it. I mean, it's basically turns uh, the Low Countries into a landlocked territory. And along these innovations, they, the, these technological innovations that Matt is talking about, a lot of it in England comes up in direct competition to the innovations brought about uh, by, you know, Dutch mercantile seafaringness in this early modern period. And yes. just that idea that there is no other, I mean, theoretically, some other political entity that would, would arise, uh, would, you know, maybe it's... Uh, mainland england competing with uh, i don't know maybe amsterdam is now dundee scotland or something uh as like the mercantile capital of northern europe europe but just as you're talking about the force the, the conditions that force englishmen to adopt capitalism you know if you don't have a power right across the channel right there that you are competing with every day for shipping lanes for trade routes for uh you know mer- merchant uh supremacy like it, it just vastly disincentivizes any kind of the development there, and then England gets to adapt all of these innovations that the Dutch pioneer that, the, yes. that they observe this, and then they're able to incorporate into the their state that then is able to compete on equal terms with the Dutch and eventually overwhelm them because of their superior population and resources. I mean, the Dutch were punching way above their weight mm-hmm. because of the very specific conditions that they that they uh, existed under, which would not exist in this yes. world. There would be no Dutch Republic to break away from Habsburg, Spain, and and to frantically, due to the necessity of war over the next 80 years, forge this uh, mercantile uh, 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 proto-capitalist colonial machinery uh, that becomes the like structural apparatus for the imposition of capitalism on the globe. And again, and like maybe have that with a filled-in doggerland. And again, this is such a, a wild, like, what if, I mean, again, maybe the Dutch Republic just exists, but it's off the, you know, west coast of Denmark that is now extends a few hundred more miles into the sea or something like that. Like, obviously, perhaps these conditions arise somewhere else, but it would, given we're just talking about what, how it would change our conception of European development now, I, I think, yeah, you can't underplay the importance of the development of, you know, the, the Dutch Republic as pre-England. Yeah. England, England uh, zero, Mark one. Yeah, or England Mark one, and then they got the best deal out of anybody. The Dutch, for like, there, there's a there's a premium for uh, being first in any place, right? Like, and 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 the Dutch have uh, enjoyed it immensely because they were the the innovators that they they did, created the the blueprint that the British eventually then took from them. In what ended up, they fought a couple of wars, but it, it ended up being a um, a leveraged buyout. Mm-hmm. Like when they brought William and Mary over in 1688, that is essentially a a uh, corporate merger between the Dutch uh, and and English colonial uh, enterprises. So, so well, well, I have a, actually a couple of of things. Do you think then that the Dutch or really Northern Europe is for, is part of this like greater imperial polity that we're now creating in our minds? Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. What so I was that, saying is, is that they invented the thing. Then they got leverage bought out. They didn't have to be destroyed. They weren't their 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 uh, fields weren't salted. They didn't have their precious uh, clocks and chocolates taken from them. They got to <laughs> live at a higher standard of living, and they've been able to hold on to that ever since. And now they're able to to tinker with their beautiful little 
clockwork uh, society there on a subsidy, on an imperial subsidy. Uh, and meanwhile, England, you know, they're the ones who took it and ran with it, but they're just so fucking miserable. <laughs> they're just so they're so miserable because they lost it relatively recently and they still have the psychic scars for that whereas the dutch haven't had it for hundreds of years so they're just happy to have their their narrow ass houses well this is then the question is there a homogeneity in all these cultures that are pretty much not homogenous partially because the doggerland was filled in and it led to this constant conflict so is there like are, are, are there in the era of nation states, is there just one gigantic mega Western European state? Well, that's the thing is I think basically what we're asking is, could you have a reestablishment of a imperial social formation in uh, Europe after the fall of the Roman empire? And uh, in the real world, I think that conclusively, no, given our geography, given the layout of things, there can be no way for a central power to reassert itself uh, onto the European continent after the fall of Rome. But again, we're assuming, what if you don't have that England down there? What if you don't have this low countries, this specific nexus of, of, of broken down uh, authority that can be reconstituted by like uh, with this in this relationship, this sort of uh, osmotic relationship with the rest of Europe? where it's able to stabilize and, and uh, innovate around the conflict that defines the rest of the continent. Uh, without that, maybe you could reimpose central uh, imperial authority. And what that means is you have the continuation of the cycle of boom and bust uh, rather than the sort of broken, uh, straightforward line. The, the, what, what do they call it? The, uh, the great uh, divergence, <laughs> right? That, in the uh, from the 16th to the 19th century, sees Europe just essentially escape gravity with its uh, technological and cultural innovations. And if we don't have that divergence, then we would still be, I guess, not in feudalism because by the 17th century it's in crisis just uh, naturally. But uh, it would have to be something dramatically different, and I think it would mean that we would be at a dramatically later. uh, earlier stage of technological development right now in that world. Well, then this is the Ireland question because there is still a UK uh, in the sense that there is an island looking at Europe and it's Ireland. Does that matter do we get a form of irish capitalism and if we don't why do you guys think that wouldn't have happened there i'd say it's just ireland is just too small we're talking about the goldilocks zone right and in the in the in england is a small island relatively you know to madagascar or whatever but it's also densely populated and has a lot of uh, a lot of uh, fertile land on it and ireland is 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 a fraction of its size and population and and I don't think it would be able to support the level of social production necessary to really get behind innovations. Uh, and also, as I said, it would not be able to have an imperial relationship. What with itself? I think it would be more. <laughs> I think it would more likely be Ireland would be sort of like an Iceland, or you know, like Sardinia or something. You know, just like an island that is a stable thrall to one of the probably the the Anglo French Empire there, because one of the things that makes capitalism happen is it's not just Britain being this backwater with nothing but a bunch of wool and a need to compete. They also have this place where they can 
experiment with ways of seeing, to get uh, academic with it, ways of viewing uh, questions of efficiency and, and, and human, uh, like new values, like uh, replacing uh, like the, the stable rhythmic agricultural values that had like defined feudal society with, with abstract values around, I mean, which is the Scottish uh, around production, which are capable when you're not, when you're not dealing with your people in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the es- existential sense, when you're dealing with free real estate and the free labor of subjects uh, and that those structures of, of, of legal thought uh, and, and of theology uh, and, and just the techniques of improving agricultural yield are all pioneered in Ireland. So, I mean, what you're, so when you say about that Goldilocks zone, you know, really what you're saying is the, the, one of the main things about England is that it is a small island off of a competitive continent with a small island off of it. So yes. really for Ireland to become the England, it would have to have an Ireland off of it. Exactly. But I don't, I don't think necessarily that we wouldn't eventually see capitalism emerge just out of, you know, uh, a, a, some sort of response to a crisis that we couldn't even anticipate, you know, because that's the thing that knocks like, Europe in that direction are these exogenous shocks. And so we have to assume that those will continue to accumulate because there's still contradictions in this, you know, uh, uh, cod feudalism that they have this mercantile proto-capitalism that they get to before England takes off. But I think the difference is the exogenous shocks come within the context of constant competition. The exogenous shocks come within a world when if you like literally curve the wall of your castle, now you're able to conquer new nation states. And so the difference here is that we might get capitalism, let's say in the year 3000 with the fighting between the various land-based empires right. that, that now dominate Europe. And, and that is just so different that we can't even predict what it was. Yeah also related to colonization. So without absent these forms of constant competition, which engender competition for sea craft vessels to search for literal capital, what happens to the Western Hemisphere? Is that just left totally untouched? I think it would be a long time, a lot longer, before there was any contact. And that raises a very interesting question because if contact is like sporadic, and not organized around, you know, like uh, uh, joint stock companies and 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 uh, colonies and and all and these projects. If it's just you know people getting blown off course or small raiding parties or things like that, then do you have a situation where uh, uh, the uh, Amer Indians encounter uh, uh, European diseases uh, and then are able to you know adapt to them? Have a bunch of people, of course, die because that's going to happen it happened in europe um but not in a context where everyone is dying as europe is colonizing the continent but rather while europe is still basically doing their own thing probably concentrating on their eastern frontiers so that eventually there would be contact between these extended contact between these two groups but it would be in a one where there is no more a biological advantage to the europeans and if that's the case then I don't think you can have European con- conquest of the Americas. 
which we'll talk about in a future episode. Everyone, yeah. Matt just gave us a preview. <laughs> well, I do. I have to uh, ask to clarify because you know, obviously, this scrambles the map of the entirety of European history. But you know, the initial phases of exploration were very much a Southern European project. Uh, to, yeah. You know, Spain, Portugal, leading the way, and of course, it's Spain that makes first contact with the new world. So, I mean, do you see the destabilizing of Northern Europe to be so significant? in this history that, you know, Spain is not, and Portugal are still not competing to unlock new, unlock new areas of the map on the African coast. And then eventually seeing what's out there further to the West and the, uh, the, the, all of those projects were motivated by the, in a, in a, in a macro sense, those were all of those trips to the West, all those trips across to the scary edge of the world were uh were inevitable as soon as the uh, Ottomans take Constantinople because it was a, a move out of necessity to compensate mm-hmm. for closure of trade routes to the east right and what i'm assuming in this world is a constant is that you have a a sustainable eastward project that can orient european politics and and in a way that was denied them by the relative Weakness of uh, Europe vis-a-vis the rising power of the Turks. And I feel like if you don't have that, if you have a, like a actual colonial domination of like Near East and, and Central Europe and, uh, and, and like land connections to, uh, to trade routes, uh, I don't know if there's the incentive to put that much into westward, get a, a very risky westward expansion or exploration. I- Definitely get what you're saying. I think that it might scramble the timeline a little bit, but I have to imagine even if there is eventually, a, it's going to yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah. Like that's the thing. Eventually, all of this is going to happen because of the fact that it's just it's it, it's it's uh, it's cyclical, but it's also uh, accumulative. Like right, uh, technology is accumulative, and that means that it changes the relationship between people and their environment in a way that they don't understand and anticipate at the time, and that leads them to break up without even knowing it. What they're the world they live in and building one without knowing what it is. Uh, and th- that was capitalism in this world, but it would have to be something no matter what, because the crisis continued to accumulate at the center of a class society. But this, I think, leads us to an interesting question about the mind worlds of these people, because I would say it's pretty clear you're not going to get a Scottish Enlightenment, which is effectively the the li- early liberalism providing the ideological sheen of capitalism. But yeah. what happens to the Catholic Church in this world? That's really interesting. Do you even get a Protestant Reformation? Or is this sort of land-based imperial space, it kind of just allows the Catholic Church to continue indefinitely, particularly when you're facing Mongol society to the east yes. and an Islamic society to the south. Yep. What happens to the church? So do you not that the, do you not get the technology of Protestantism, which is so yeah. crucial, I think, to capitalism's dominating Europe and eventually the world? No, I, I think you have a, a, a holy and unified Christendom uh, because it was gr- the growing pains of Europe that brought Protestants into existence. But those growing pains were accelerated by all of these, you know, urbanizing trends that were caused by this small state competitive framework that we're sort of getting, we're assuming out of existence. So, uh, yeah, I don't think, I think you have, there's obviously you'll never have a stability. Uh, you know, there was always going to be cyclical outbreaks of resistance to the church, uh, heresies and whatnot. But I don't think that they get uh, locked into local and then national networks of like state support. So I think you got, you keep the church, the church stays uh, in control of the whole continent there. 
Yeah, and I mean, as we will get into in Matt and I's future situation, it is uh, no coincidence that Protestantism breaks out in the most disunified area of the empire. And if we're, I mean, it's, I don't know if I'm totally convinced with, uh, with the, what we seem to take in as the given that, you know, the, the, this leads to a more u- unified, inevitably to a more unified Europe. I mean, I'm like 50 50, because when you look at the two major pulses of the, center mass of Europe. You either get a France where things get unified more quickly or a Germany where everything continues to fall apart. And I, again, the conditions I think are so hard to know given this big of a what if that perhaps, you know, Northern England or North, all of Northern Europe falls into a, um, a Holy Roman empire trap. And it is, uh, you know, a, a disunified mass. And in that case, you know, I think that you could maybe see Protestantism breaking out in Scotland, for example, for example. But, you know, I, I agree with Matt, if you take the premise that things are going to be more unified and there is a more singular Christendom because of this change. Yeah. I think that, that, that innovation, that the particular mind virus of Protestantism comes much later in a different place, if at all. I would predict, I, I agree. Yeah. It would come later. And I, I don't know exactly when, obviously, but I would say if you had to make you guess where I would say, uh, Switzerland because of the mountains, baby, <laughs> religious, uh, uh, religious descent is always more, uh, uh, secure at elevation. I think that's where it would pop up. <laughs> well, and the question, though, because I tend to lean toward the unification, um, because where you have so much exchange between Britain and France over the course of that entire late medieval period, uh, what if you basically don't have France as a place to escape to? for all of these leaders who then escape there and then reconvene and then reconquer England. And then they have parts of Normandy and then they don't have parts of Normandy because that gets rid of all of that competition, which I think is, is the more micro regional context for the development of proto capitalism in the UK and and really proto liberalism in the sense of focusing on the individual. So what if you don't get that sort of individual, the inventing of the individual, argument for Europe and Europe becomes a more socially organized space in, in the mind worlds of the people living there. I mean, does Europe end up looking more like Chinese history? Right. Which is, you know, you get a, an incredibly different culture. So you, you get basically the argument being that like Paul, the St. Paul develops the idea of the individual and then it, it really takes off over the next thousand years in, in Northern Africa and Europe. But what if that entire European part of the equation is, got, is thrown out? Do you get socialism in 13th uh, century uh, Western Europe? I mean, Europe? not obviously advanced socialism as we would understand it as a, as a horizon, you know, to transcend class politics or uh, to, to transcend class rule. Uh, but like as a sort of like a peasant equilibrium, Perhaps the comments, but then you don't get you, know. you don't get uh, technologically advanced like society. You don't have all the things that we uh, uh, embed in our assumptions of our social goods because they define our society. And that's the thing you can't really have. You cannot have socialism without capitalism first. Uh, and so whatever is going to would emerge in this world that we're uh, creating, it would have to be some sort of. Uh, uh, if it was going to be socialism, it would have to be socialism at a very low level of social technological development because, and it would, and it would be, it would have been perhaps the collective will of people to be like, let's not go down that road. Let's not do that. Let's all choose as we can to do that. And, and then they could make the the choice, which would have been a rational choice if it could have been agreed to and understood as such 
to not open that particular box. Uh, but you know, we don't, we didn't get those conditions. So that means we instead unopened the box, which created, you know, the modern alienated capitalist subject who can only be redeemed by participation in socialist class struggle. It's the, it's the final secular continuation of Protestantism. So you, you, uh, so, you know, in a sense, you're supposed to say, well, thank God we had Doggerland because it gave us a chance to develop a, a socialist project. But now we sit, sort of stand sort of at the precipice of, 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 the, of the missed chance of socialism. And this is why we sit here and we, we ponder, like, well, maybe it would be better off if we were all, you know, like in some sort of rural commune, <laughs> but not <laughs> like hippies trying off. to escape who they are, but like in a, Organic in a, way, in a rooted... You know, social sense. I think a lot of people are fantasizing about that one way or the other uh, on on different parts of the uh, political spectrum. But, you know, what would it need? What would you need to do to live that way? You would need to literally live in a world where there was no England, where where the (laughs) Doggerland never filled in. That's the only world where that is possible. So turning that into a political project is it's a fantasy. But what if you get here? Here's a. Uh, a potential hinge point. What if you get capitalism with Ottoman characteristics? Ooh. Like, what if the Ottomans, who are who are in a more central, like sort of middle space, literally, where they have to defend various peripheries, and for example, that's why they developed a lot of these military technologies. What if they're able to actually successfully invade Central Europe, which seems mm-hmm. more likely in a world without uh, an independent England? Mm. It's also, I mean. Again, there's so many ways you could take this. It's also like, okay, if we're imagining uh, a more unified Europe without so much, um, you know, interstate conflict as uh, it progresses, they're theoretically not developing as sophisticated uh, means of warfare throughout this entire time, which means that a more expansive project like the Ottomans might be able to simply roll over them Just and take over looking, the world. Yeah, I mean, literally take yeah, over you're looking all at the world. Ottoman Frankfurt or whatever, you know, right? Because like the, the, the key, at least in 20th century geopolitics is you can't let anyone control the Eurasian ecumen. And no one was ever able to control the Western portion of that ecumen because of the incredible number of uh, polities in Europe and hence the violence in the developing military technologies over the course of the late medieval and early modern period. But if you get rid of that, and what if you get like an ecu- a literally ecumenical empire? That's uh, maybe we do get maybe we maybe we we don't get a Marx because the history is so different with Doggerland that you're able to pass over the violence of capitalism because you have just this gigantic pseudo world empire. I mean, obviously you would come into contact with the Chinese on its Eastern borders, but imagine if you have an ecumenical space, totally unified. I mean, again, I'm, I'm kind of thinking that this is even more, I, I think that there's other ways that you could think that this wouldn't even be that revolutionary. Cause I'm even thinking about like, you know, the, uh, Muslim invasion of Spain was able to eventually be fought off and rolled back. And again, that Spain is developing capacity just through, what through its own internal conflicts, internal Christian conflicts, conflicts with Spain, which or with France, which is its only direct neighbor. I mean, I'm thinking of like the small regions in which things are able to are would continually develop roughly the same. And thinking about what that would mean for a connected UK, I mean, I think that 
it is certainly possible that a single united Christendom develops uh, and through the lack of conflict is is weakened through it. But, you know, I, I, there are still these very strong political uh, or, uh, you know, political entities that developed just through their own internal conflict. And again, the relatively isolated Iberian Peninsula, you know, I mean, it's just got that one, that the one border with France and it was able to develop enough to push out uh, the, it's, it's Muslim occupiers. I mean, does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, it it does. And that also like, what if relatedly you don't get the, or, or related, you do get the development of the Italian city-state system, which is so Well, I was so also crucial. thinking just in the back of my head, it's like if, if France and if, you know, there's, there's all this land up here, perhaps the Normans don't go uh, south and perhaps, you know, Sicily and, and, you know, Naples are forever connected with Italy. Perhaps Italian unification happens hundreds of years earlier as a, like, singular kingdom, you know, uh, which is, again, I guess that points towards the development of a more unification rather than less unification if there is more land to offset any kind of pressures and conflicts. And and to some degree, that depends on what Doggerland would be. If it's swampy, marshy territory, then you still have England. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's territory that's easily crossable by horses, then I think you, you, you have an entirely different space. And maybe it's still difficult to cross the Pyrenees, but it's possible. You know, it's, it's certainly not impossible. And you could even imagine a flanking procedure from the south where you go through the Straits of Gibraltar and you just go up through there, through your, you know, Brit, Brit, Brito, Franco, uh, super <laughs> empire that now controls Germany into the Eastern Prussian fields. And, and that, that to me, I, I really do think that there were, there would have been more unification. And I really do think that it would have tamped down competition in Europe, which just really, in my mind, provides a space for the Ottomans to just come in in the 14, 1500s and just take shit over. Okay. So. Best case scenario, we have uh, the imposition of uh, Islamic rule over Europe. Right, and right, which is you're always saying, Matt. That's, universal, the, that's the way forward. Universal enlightenment coming in the form of a, of a Muslim holy war that sweeps the globe uh, and brings about the return of the Mahdi. <laughs> Do you get colonialism in that world? Or do you just go to like the moon? Like you develop space technology in 1750. Well, again, and then- it's like it's all about like how are how what are the conditions under which uh, the the native the Americans broadly considered uh, encounter the European uh, disease matrix? You know the 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 the, the diseases of uh, of demographically dense societies. Like if they encounter them uh, over time. And not in the context of like a direct confrontation. I think that you don't have your colonialism because it can't be sustained. It, it cannot be uh, the it, can, the it cannot be dug deeply in, enough into the earth to make it worth the the effort. Uh, which is not true in our world because there was the entire uh, hundreds of miles with inland of of everywhere that the uh, Europeans touched. They were uh, essentially uncontested for land because of the massive toll taken uh, in the populations of the people who encountered those diseases. Uh, if that doesn't happen, then I don't think you have colonialism, which means, yeah, we're, you, you, uh, we either destroy ourselves in a, in a world war somehow uh, or we, uh, we get it together to create world government and go to the moon. Those are the two options. Those are always the ones that are on the table. 
<laughs> and that's what, what's also really implied in all this is you don't ba- you basically don't get the nation state as a political form, right. which is in I it think is an imposition of like this this right. particular European phenomenon, right? And I, I think the nation state is a, a major cause of humanity's misery. So <laughs> oh, removing yeah. that entire political form, I think, does augur a more progressive world. Yeah. However, you want to define that. Yeah, no. Nationalism has been the the, the chief uh, psychic technology of uh, of <clears throat> of reaction and of defeating uh, of socialism at every turn. And that's the irony of actually existing history: is that you need that conflict to develop the capitalism, to develop the technologies necessary to actually create socialism. But concomitantly, you get the development of a nationalism that prevents the working class from becoming the subject object of history. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the 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 the, the impasse we are at today. Yeah. So the answer: How do we fix that? Somebody uh, get a time machine and a and a, and a, a bunch of bulldozers and just. Damn it up. Like just <laughs> total levy. Well, I mean, that's a funny thing. When we were like starting with the very the premise of this, obviously the the natural premise is that this geographic formation existed once and wonder if it per- persisted. But the other funny thing is England's right there. You yeah. can see it from France. Like if there was just a bridge, like literally like a causeway that you could get people across, like permanently. If there was 500 feet of solid ground but at dover you know uh it would you know the the, everything would be so radically changed uh along these axes and that's why i think it's it's fun to think about uh because you know that's the thing about england so close but so far yeah and it really is uh one of the biggest mechanisms the drivers of of all of world history it's they get that they get that little moat Ugh. (laughs) <laughs> and what's interesting to me about this one in particular is that it really does highlight the centrality of geography, the ultimate uh-huh. material to world history, which is something that's not an especially popular topic of conversation, but for most of human you know, strategic thinking was absolutely crucial. So this is probably the most macro one that we're going to do uh, this season. We've got a bunch of really fun episodes coming up dealing with Napoleon, dealing with Martin Luther, dealing with uh, the topic Matt discussed about what if there were encounters between the Western Hemisphere and Europe much earlier than they actually occurred. I feel um, like you, so- should, you guys should do that one next because I feel like it really flows directly from this. You know, if there was just, if we just sent over a few trade boats, if, they, or if Europe had just sent over a few trade boats, seen what was up, for like, and then we're like, yeah, we'll get you get to you guys later, and get, gave the new world a hundred years or so to cook with uh, cooking up antibodies. Wildly different future, yeah, yeah and enormously different. And then uh, again, organized around that central question of colonialism is is foundational to say the least to capitalism. So what if you have an, a non-extractive relationship there or non-extractive in quite the same way? I think it opens up entire new spaces to think through what could have been. All right. On that cough, everyone, thank you for listening (laughs) to Hinge Points. We look forward to seeing you all next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. 